Life is uh, full of ups and downs. You'll know this to be true because you're alive. Right? It's full of ups and downs. Some examples. Having babies. Having a baby, like the actual moment, is definitely an up. It's exciting. Everyone's crying. They send you candies afterwards. It's pretty fun. That's an up. Then you take the baby home. I was going to say sometimes that's a down. I mean, I haven't been in every house that ever brought home a child. I've been in our house four times. All four times, that moment is a down moment. My wife is saying, preach, preacher, preach. First baby, Jordan, brought him home. I'll never forget that first night at home as we tried to get him to latch. And I say we because you're like, that's Nikki's job. What were you doing? I'll tell you what I was doing. I was kneeling on the ground next to the rocking chair, holding back my baby's hands as he was like flailing at her so that she could try and get him to latch while he screamed. It's a down moment. We, we had some dark, remember? We had, that was, whoa. That was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like we're sitting there going, what have we done? You have no idea. Woo, it's an up. The baby's born. It's a very positive moment. Then you take the baby home and you're like, help me, Jesus. Getting a job. That's an up moment, right? Remember your first serious job interview? Think back. I'm not talking like, you know, we've all had part-time jobs. I'm talking like the interview that led to your career. Before my first job in a church, I sold cars right out of university. Because my sweet mother-in-law, who was in HR, said to me, it's easier to get a job when you have a job, so just get whatever job you can. So I was like, I love cars. I could talk to people. I'll sell cars. So I sold Nissans for a while. But that wasn't going to be my career. So the first interview that led to my career was to become youth pastor at St. George's Anglican Church, just west of Milton. And I'll never forget, driving up to that interview, I actually pulled over about a kilometer south of the church. I could see it up on the hill. Because I had to talk to Jesus. Because I would like, Jesus, you know me better than myself. You understand that there's a snowball's chance that these people are going to hire me. So, I mean, if you could help me, that'd be nice. I mean, in the interview that led to your career, how many people did you have to interview in front of? Was it one or two? Maybe it was like a whole step. Did any of you have a firing squad? Show me if you had to get interviewed in front of a firing squad. Show me, show me your hands. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, right? When they hired me at Grace, my first like big meeting, I think there was 20 people in the room. Try that one on for size. I bumped into Shea Barker outside. She's the first person from Grace I ever met. Good thing, eh, that it was you? It's really, I often think about that. And I walked into that room and it was at the McLennan's old house and there was, I don't even know, was it 20 people there? And uh, I always said to my wife, I knew right away. I took one look at the room, I was like, these are our people. Very strange. So you get the job, you're excited, that's an up. Then you start working the job. <laughs> Somebody shout, right? You're like, oh, I know. I know what you're talking about, preacher. I, understand. I was here that first year, right? Y'all survived the first year. Congratulations. Nice to see you. Glad you're here. I'm, I jest. I mean, I jest, but only kind of. Because you know that once you get into the grind of doing your job, that that can become a down. It's up, you're excited, you got it, now you're working it, and sometimes it just becomes a grind. You're like, whoa, this is tougher than I thought. Next example. Losing 10 pounds. That's an up. Right? I, whenever I lose... Now, some of you are very fit people. 
you don't understand what I'm talking about because you've never lost 10 pounds. If you lose 10 pounds, you go to see Jesus, right? <laughs> Me, it's like a good thing. I could lose 10 pounds. So you lose 10 pounds, you're like, hallelujah, right? I think of it as like 10 sticks of butter, like those, that's a pound. 10 of those are gone from my waistline. I'm like, that's awesome. That's an up. Then it comes back, and that's a down. Like, I don't know about you. I'm praying for you. But me, my waistline's like a boomerang. Yeah, I get rid of it. It comes back. It's like seasonal almost. I'm thinking of changing its name to G'day, mate. Like, G'day, mate, I'm back. Nice to see you. How you doing? Good. All right. I thought you were gone. Ah, for a minute. You lose 10 pounds, it's up. You gain it back, it's down. Mary had a very up moment last week when she found out she's going to be mother of Messiah. If you were here last week, if you weren't, you can listen to it, gracecommunity.ca. Just hit listen and all the sermons are there. Angel shows up, says, you're going to have a baby and call his name Jesus. And he will be the son of the most high. He will save his people from their sins. You are going to be the mother of the Savior. This is a very up moment. This is an amazing moment for her. And then you can bet that as soon as the angel was gone, because the Bible says the angel departed from her, she was alone in her bedroom. And I wonder how many minutes it was before this thought occurred to her. They're going to kill me. Because in Jewish law at the time, for a young, she was probably a teenager. I mean, not probably. She was definitely a teenager. We're just not sure if she was like how young. Most scholars think 15-ish, maybe 16 So for a young Jewish teenager who was not married, she was only betrothed, promised to Joseph, was not yet married to him. So for a young woman like this to be caught pregnant out of the context of wedlock meant death by stoning. So she has this great up moment. You're going to be mother of Messiah. And then in the dark, you can bet that she thought, whoa, they're going to kill me before I reach my second trimester. The angel tells her what's going to happen. Her first reaction, we looked at it last week. What is it? She's afraid. How do we know? Because the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. So then she accepts it. She's like, okay, cool. Let it be to me according to your will. Right? So these are the two things that happened last week. And then what happens this week? Well, I'll tell you what happens this week. Here is uh, Luke chapter 1. This is not our text, but I want to set up our text. So as soon as the angel leaves her, this is what she does. Luke 1, verse 39, if you're following along. Now Mary arose in those days, listen to this, and went into the hill country with haste. She was rushing, she was in a hurry, with haste, to a city in Judah, about 160 miles south of Nazareth. Would have taken her 10 days to get there. She wouldn't have gone by herself because nobody traveled that route alone, let alone a teenage girl. She arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Elizabeth spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And then skipping to verse 56. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her house. 
She evacs for the first three months of her pregnancy. I met a biblical scholar last year in Israel. I was doing some filming there. And I was talking with this scholar about Nazareth during the time of the advent of Christ. And uh, this scholar said that she believes that during that evac, when Mary all but fled to her cousin's house, Joseph probably remains behind in Nazareth running interference. You can imagine what a tough sell that would have been for him. Mom, Dad... Mary's pregnant. Don't worry, it wasn't me. Well, who was it that? It was an angel. Right. Right, like God help you if you ever have to tell somebody that your girlfriend is pregnant by the Spirit of God. Like, what? So she's with Elizabeth, and when she shows up at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth makes this great exclamation, Blessed art thou, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And in Mary's response to Elizabeth's proclamation, we catch a glimpse into how this remarkable young woman was going to handle the ups and downs of her life in light of the angel's message. And my hope for you this morning is that you might, as you listen to this this morning, learn something to help you cope with the ups and downs of your life. Trying to learn from her response. And this is her response. Here's Luke 1, 46 through 55. Take a look. And Mary said, My soul, in the, new, in the King James, doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. It's how Mary responds to the angelic visitation. Hopefully we can learn how to respond to the ups and downs of our life as we study her response this morning. Look at how it begins in verse 46. And Mary said, I love this, and Mary said, Mary speaks. And what she said has echoed down through the millennia. A young woman in Nazareth in Jewish society at this time would have had not much of a public voice. It would be rare for her to speak and for us to listen. It's beautiful that here we are, more than 2,000 years later, preaching in church this young woman's words. And Mary said, the teachable point for us is this, you respond for you. She doesn't defer her response. She responds for herself, and you need to do the same. You respond for you. The question for us is this, how are we responding to the twists and turns of life? We need to think about this because guaranteed we're responding somehow. Often we just react. You know what I'm talking about? Something bad happens and we react. You get a twist in the road, you immediately turn right, you immediately turn left, you immediately leap into action. I want to invite you in light of this this week to analyze your response to the twists and turns of life. 
So pay attention to this. This week, the first moment that a twist or a turn hits you, stop yourself from reacting in the moment and consider your response. Think about it for a moment. Slow it down. Recognize the moment because the word has told us to recognize it. Recognize it. All right, a twist has just hit me. This is an up or this is a down. I am going to respond somehow. How am I about to respond? Hopefully you respond like Mary. Continuing in verse 46. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My soul doth magnify the Lord. She's speaking for herself here. I get to remind us this morning that you can't respond for others. Think about it for a second. How much time in your life have you spent trying to respond for someone else? Especially if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Especially if your kids are teenagers or young adults. Chances are you spent many an hour trying to respond for them, or at least wishing you could. I wish I could respond. I wish I could step in and take the lead on their behalf. You can't. My soul, they have to respond. What can I do then? Well, you can pray for them. I've got to tell you, over the years as I've pastored, I've been a pastor since I was 19, I'm 43, so it's a while now. And a few times a year, I will have someone come to me and say, Pastor, I have a family member, a loved one, a friend who is really going astray, and they're not listening to me, and there's really nothing I can do. What can I do? It's like pure terror as a pastor when they bring you that question. Because they already know that there's nothing they can do, so they think there's something you can do, because you're the holy man. You're like, whoa, Lord, help me understand. But fortunately, I do have a response. And this is one that I learned as a teenager. I had a friend who refused to come to Jesus, despite my best efforts to argue him into the kingdom. (laughs) I was such a fool. I'll never forget, in an argument with him, I finally said, you know what, you're not going to listen no matter what I say. We're not going to have this conversation anymore. Instead, I'm just going to start praying for you. And I didn't tell him this till years later, but I made a covenant, an agreement with God. I said, I'm going to fast every Friday and pray for my friend until he comes to Jesus. And I forget, I think it was seven months of fasting Fridays in high school. It was hard, right, for a teenage boy to fast Fridays in high school? I fasted until he came to Jesus. And he came to Jesus. And after he came to Jesus, I said, let's go have a cheeseburger. <laughs> we did the same thing again years later in our youth group. We were in transition. We, our youth pastor had left, and we were waiting for a new one to come. And so the young men in the youth group, we had a big youth group. It was about 250 kids. So the young men in the youth group gathered together, and we would meet on Tuesday nights to worship Jesus a cappella. We would just sing worship songs and to study our Bibles. And then one of us, I don't remember who it was, came up with a bright idea that we should make a list of all of our closest friends who weren't saved, who didn't know Jesus. We should write them down. So we did that. We like got a piece of paper and we wrote down all of our friends, like our closest friends who didn't know Jesus. No word of a lie. It was 33 young men. And we decided as a group of young men that we would fast and pray for those 33. And so we did. The young men of our youth group fasting and praying one day a week. i got to tell you, a year later, every single one of those 33 were serving Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there's magic in this formula. I'm just telling you it's the only one I know. 
So you may have a different pastor give you a different suggestion. That's mine. Okay, if you're dealing with somebody who will not repent, who will not listen to you, make a covenant with the Lord. Say to God, I'm fasting so that you will notice and set your grace upon my loved one and irresistibly draw them to yourself because I'm at my wit's end. Let's go. It's called a fervent prayer. My dad taught me you're allowed to pray like one or two, maybe three fervent prayers a year. That's it. For the fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So you pray for them, and you get busy loving them. Because I know we're human, right? You want to be busy doing something. So what should I? I can't. I got to do something. Love them. What does it mean to biblically love someone? It means to give yourself away. It means to selflessly love them, to prefer them above yourself. So if you need to be busy doing something, busily love them. While fasting one day a week and praying. Because you can't respond for them. You have to respond for you, and they have to respond for them. Why? Because each of us have a key decision to make for ourselves. The key decision lies in the response to this question. Am I the master or is God? This is a question that every human being who lives has to answer at some point. Everything else is either getting to that point or living after that point. No word of a lie. Every person you know, you are either in relationship with them getting to that point where they will be forced to ask themselves the question, am I the master or is God? Or you are living with them after that moment where they have answered that question. And of course, if you're anything like me, you know that you need to continue answering that question because if you're like me, you're a bit of a fool and you keep forgetting all the time. And you're like, uncle, you're master, I'm not. Sorry, let's reset. That's what repentance is. It's like, reset, boop. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm good, I'm good. Am I the master or is God? Mary is very clear on this. Look at verse 46. My soul ooh, <laughs> doth magnify the master. That's the word here, the Lord, kurios. My soul doth magnify the master, whoa, and my spirit uh, exalts uh, in God my Savior. Yes, that's the word. Rejoices means to exalt. So, <clears throat> look, if you came to church thinking that this is the Sunday that Todd's going to calm down, I'm here to tell you this is not that day. I'm just here, and if you're here for the first time, I hope they told you that I'm a little crazy. Because if not, this is about to freak you out. So know that I love you and I'm glad you're here. And I'm not going to make any apology for what's about to happen. Because of what Mary says. My soul doth magnify the master. And my spirit exalts in God my Savior. First point. My soul doth magnify the master. Mary here is choosing a God-centric life. Hey, what say you? She's choosing a God-centric life. My Soul doth magnify the master. I'm going to make the master the center of my life. I'm going to make the master my north star. I'm going to make the master the one who gets to call balls and strikes and gets to tell me what to do. I choose a God-centric life, and here's Todd's favorite part. I choose to exalt in it. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. I just want to point out right here off the top that there's a very big difference between, oh yeah, God's my master, big deal. And, God is my master, 
the best day of my life. Because who is God, after all? Who are we talking about here? I mean, if the story is true, like, allow me for a minute to imagine that the story is true. If the story is true, we're talking here about the God of the universe. We're talking here about the master maker of all that is. The one who framed the worlds with his spoken word. And he's your dearest friend. He's the one who sticks closer to you than a brother. He's the one who has God the Son suffered and died in your place for your sins and rose again for your salvation. Don't worry, I'll get to the gospel in a minute. People sometimes ask me, and believe it or not, this is not the first time I've ever been asked it. You know, why are you so excited all the time? How come every time we give you the pulpit, you lose your mind? Why are you so passionate? Do you have to be so loud? Why are you so intense? You know why? Because I exult in God my Savior. And what's funny is, I mean, I've been told you're supposed to calm down as you get older. It's not happening to me. Because the older I get, the more I realize how much I need Jesus. Somebody shout. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying... I'm not losing my love for Christ as I get older. I'm starting to love him more because I get older. My body's starting to break down. I'm starting to like get overwhelmed by the wretchedness of humankind. I realize the depths of my own depravity and the degree to which I'm lost and without hope in the absence of Jesus. And so the more I reflect on this and on the fact that he has loved me with an everlasting love despite my unlovableness, I kind of lose my mind a little bit. I can't, I can't stop it. I exult in God my Savior. Now look, I understand that it's possible that we may have forgotten what exaltation looks like. Alright, so just in case y'all forgot, this is what it looks like to exult. Y'all heard me. Did you hear Jim Nance announcing that run? I don't know if it's just me, but it sounded to me like he was preaching the gospel. Did you hear Rodney Harrison go, Woo! When, 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 when Marshawn Lynch pushed that one guy away, it was like Jim Nance said, Somebody shout! And Rodney Harrison was like, Oh, testify! Did you see Questfield go crazy? This is the beast quake. I don't know if y'all are football fans. This really happened. I was watching this game, okay? The earthquake people in Seattle registered an earthquake when that crowd lost its mind. That's how much they were exultant over a football play. So I got to say, stop bothering me about being so loud. I'm just saying. I don't want to hear it anymore. You're like, really? Yeah, really? Really? I mean, I would say play it again, but y'all saw it. 80,000 people losing their mind to the degree that they caused an earthquake. 
I mean, it is a sad state of affairs when we get more excited about a sporting event than we do about the salvation of our souls. Or better yet, about the salvation of the 133,000 souls who live in the city of Guelph. I mean, or could we have a regional reach? Could we get really crazy and say that, you know, some people might come and taste and see that the Lord is good at grace from Fergus and Elora. Would some come from Rockwood? How about East Cambridge or North Kitchener? I mean, is that too much to dream? They might come and taste and see that the Lord is good and worship and word and sacrament in the context of his community gathered together on mission to seek and save the lost. Next time you meet a Christian who seems a little too exultant for your liking, before you judge them, I want to suggest that maybe you pause for a second and remind yourself what they are excited about. Todd, I'm just not an expressive person. So the 80,000 people at Quest Field, if we were to chart them on a graph, can we agree that not all of them would fit at the exact same spot on the expressiveness scale? Is that fair? Some would be a 3, some would be a 10, some would be a Todd. Right? Like guilty as charged. I make no pretensions otherwise. I'm like a crazy man. That's why God made me a preacher. I understand. I'm not saying you have to be me. But, I mean, that whole place was losing their mind because their running back evaded nine tacklers on his way to scoring a touchdown. All right, you kind of got me there. So, um... What is it that we're supposed to be excited about again? Let me tell you. This is verses 48 through 55. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. I mean, I'm kind of sorry to be getting all up in your face at Christmas, but I'm also kind of not sorry. Because I do believe and I am convinced that there is the slightest chance that we may have forgotten our need of a Savior in the midst of our cushy, prosperous, busy, high-achieving Western life. You know who loves Jesus? Poor people. You spend any time with poor people? I will never forget going to South Africa before, before apartheid fell. I'll never forget. I was 14 years of age. 1990. And it was during the great floods that year. We went into Soweto, which is one of the infamous slums of apartheid South Africa. We went to church. It was pouring rain. And the roads were literally rivers of mud. And we got to this church, which was on a little bit of a hill, surrounded by shacks. Like, it was apocalyptic. I've never seen anything like it since or then. And this little church was cinder block with a tin roof and a dirt floor. And the benches were literally like sawhorses, like a piece of wood with two pieces of wood. 
and the joint was packed. It was close to this room in size, maybe slightly narrower, and it was packed. And my family were the only white people in the room. When it came time for their giving back moment, they do exactly what we do. They do a couple worship songs, then the preacher gets up. He's a little more long-winded than me. That's hard to believe. And he gives a little mini-sermon about giving back. And then they sing. Of course, they had no instruments. So a lady behind us begins the chorus. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Except it was done Soweto style. So it was like this, blessed, blessed, blessed. It was like, I can't even do it justice. Assurance. Like it was, everybody knew it. And I was 14 and I was like, I got the Holy Ghost. And they danced down the aisles to the front and put their offering in the front as they dance and worship Jesus. And you should have heard these people respond to the preaching of God's word. My dad, the preacher, could hardly get a word in edgewise. Why? Because the more broke you are, the more you need Jesus. You know who else loves Jesus? Drug addicts. Why? Because drug addiction sucks. I never met a drug addict who was happy about being a drug addict. Never. I met a lot of them. Never, never, never did I meet one who was like, I'm good, I'm good, man, I'm good, I want to stay this way. Never. And when you meet a drug addict who's beginning to walk in freedom because they've been set free through the gospel of Christ and the power of the living spirit of God, these people are unstoppable. Broke people love Jesus. Addicted people love Jesus. Sick people love Jesus. Try telling somebody whose cancer got healed to keep quiet. You get a little crazy. I know. Right? It's only prosperous people who have no needs of their own who get a little uh, laid back about Jesus. Mary would agree completely. Look at verse 48. For he, the Most High, has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For the Most High has seen the lowly state of his slave. The word maidservant is slave. When was the last time you felt like a slave? I was reminded in preparing this sermon that there is still slavery in the world. Run the shot, Jordan. This is Libya, last week. These are North African refugees who were fleeing war in their lands, made the mistake of traveling through the failed state, also known as Libya, got captured by slave traders, and are literally being sold at market. About 400 bucks a man. Last week in Libya. You can go back to the text, Jordan. We need to remember that left to our own devices, we are all North African slaves being sold. Because that's what a life with Jesus, a life without Jesus looks like. You may not believe me yet because you haven't been there, but there are some of you here who would agree completely because you know that your life without Jesus led you into slavery, into bondage, and into the death of the things that you love. And if you sit here this morning and you are in Christ, you're someone who has come to Jesus, that is what you've been set free from. The New Testament explicitly says that we have been set free from slavery to sin and death. This is very unpopular theology, but it's Christian theology, so I'm obliged to remind you. 
that a Christ follower believes that those who do not follow Jesus cannot help but sin. So you should be very careful with this information. You don't want to go and just tell some random person on the street that the reason their life is terrible is because they're sold as a slave to sin. Okay, You want to share this with somebody who you know, love, with whom you've walked for long enough that they trust you. You want to share it when they say to you, you know, I was wondering if you had any ideas as to why I can never break free. You need to be bold and recognize that that's your moment to start shouting about Jesus. Or just tell them straight. You don't got to shout because you, maybe you're somewhere else on the spectrum. Totally good. You got to say to them, you need Jesus. Jesus can set you free. Jesus set me free. He can set you free too. Friends, you've been set free from slavery to sin and death. So when I say somebody shout, I mean it. I mean it. Why? Because you've been set free from slavery to sin and death. When I say somebody shout, it's me saying celebrate. It's me saying get some joy in your life. It's me saying get some vivacity in your life. It's me saying get some excitement about Jesus in your life. I am excited. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Exultant. I I get so overwhelmed by the story of Jesus and its implication for you and for me that I can hardly stand it. And I was reminded as I wrestled with this text that if you're kind of like that too, we're in pretty good company. Look at what happened in Luke 19, verses 37 through 40. This is the triumphal entry. Then as Jesus was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you what, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The stones would immediately cry out. I'm here to tell you, I will not get outdone by a rock. Same should be true for you. I don't know what that looks like. But I know that it should look like something that will make a Pharisee tell you to shut up. The Pharisees were the religious elite. Rich, prosperous, powerful, had their lives together. And they see Jesus' multitude carrying on like this and they say to him, Teacher, silence your people. They're causing a ruckus. They're making a fuss. Aren't you embarrassed? He says, Au contraire, mon frère. If these should keep silent, even the rocks would cry out. Friends, let's celebrate what has been done for us. For he who is mighty, in the, verses of, in the words of verses 49 through 50, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. It says in the original language, For he who is able, the only able one, has done great things for me. Friends, the only one 
who is able, has condescended to step into our human condition to show us His mercy in Christ. And yes, this is where I'll go to the Gospel. What is the Gospel? God exists. He made everything that is. He's altogether good. He loves you completely. He made you to be His friend forever, starting with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because He wanted them to be His friend, He gave them the agency of free will. Because He wanted them to choose to respond to His love. And so to actualize that will, He put before them a choice in the form of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He put them in the garden to steward it and to tend it. He said, eat anything you want. All the trees are here for your good, except that one. Leave that one alone. The minute you touch it, you'll surely die. If you know the story of Genesis, you know what happened next. The devil shows up. Genesis says it's a snake. Satan shows up, and he sows the first seed of doubt. He says to Eve, did God really say... You know the rest of the story. They take the fruit, they eat it. And as a result, they're banished from God's presence. He sets a flaming sword at the gates of Eden, and they are trapped forever outside. And every one of us ever born into space-time is trapped forever outside the gates of Eden. And imagine God in His goodness looking at this setup. Going, I made these people to be my friends forever. I gave them the freedom to choose. And now they're lost in the dark and they're going to die. And so what does he do? He begins to unfold his plan of redemption. A plan that climaxes in the coming of God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who's born as a baby, lives among us in real space-time history, fully God and fully man, tempted in every way in which we'll ever be tempted, yet without sin. And at the cross, suffering in ways in which we will never suffer as the sins of the world, as he hung there, were laid upon him. Your sins, my sins, the sins of the world, past, present, and future, hung on Jesus in that moment, who's fully God, so he can take all of those sins. He's also fully man, so all that sin can stick to him. And he suffers, and he dies. This is why Handel writes, there is no suffering like unto his suffering. There is no sorrow like unto his sorrow. Of course, quoting the psalmist. God the Son, the one who framed everything that is, suffers and dies in your place for your sin. But because he's God, he doesn't stay dead, but he rises again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever, ascending bodily to the Father's right hand, where even now he sits interceding for you, from whence he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. There you go. See what I'm saying? Y'all with me now? That's the gospel of Christ. You have a place. You're no longer outside the gate. In fact, the New Testament says you're seated with God in Christ right now. That's how much you've been readopted. That's how much you've been brought back home. He's done what we could not do. And I'm here to remind you this morning, friends, that He is altogether just. Look at verses 51 through 52. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. You ever wonder why I flex sometimes when I'm preaching? I flex because I'm copying my daddy. 
copying my father. Because I know the scriptures. And so when I'm flexing, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about what Mary testified. But he has a strong arm. He's shown strength with his arm. He's strong and he's tough. Why tough? Because he uses it. What does he do with his strong arm? He's shown strength. How? By scattering the proud. I love this. Proud is over-appearing ones. Try not to show up too much. This should strike fear in the heart of every preacher. This is why you often see me quiet, right, in other contexts. You ever see me quiet like we're in a gathering and I'm not taking the center of the room? It's because I'm aware that I stand up here on Sunday and I appear quite a bit. That can lead to pride. He scattered the over-appearing ones. Scattered them, like just... I was going to bring a bunch of stuffed toys to use as my example. At this point, I was just going to pick them up by the scruff of their neck and scatter them into the crowd. I thought it might freak the kids out, though, especially in first service. And then what does he do? He pulls down the mighty from their thrones. You know who the mighty are? They're the ablers. How does that apply to you? If you've become so good at something that you think you deserve homage, you're on your way to becoming one of these mighty ones who get pulled down from their thrones. So you can watch this going like, if you ever find the thought entering your mind like, they should really write an article about me. I should win an award. You ever felt that way? Maybe not. Some of you have. I know the truth. It can be as insidious as, I, I, I wish somebody would notice. I wish somebody would pat me on the back. I wish somebody would send me a thank you card. Because I'm, I'm pretty good at this. The second we start thinking that way, we've become an abler. We're so good at something that we think we deserve homage. Get ready to get pulled down by the strong arm of God. Why? Because the only one who deserves homage is him. And if we know anything about God, we know that he is jealous for his glory. And he has every right to be so. One thing also we know about God. We know that he is busily, beginning with the incarnation of Christ, turning everything on its head. Verse 52, look what he does. He exalts the lowly. This ought to be somebody's best day. If you're the lowly, know that he's in the business of exalting you. Hallelujah. He exalts the lowly. Verse 53, the hungry... He fills with good things. And the verb tense here is again one of those verb tenses that mean he did this. He has filled. He is doing it. He's filling. He will do it. He will fill you. So if you have ever found yourself hungry, if you do find yourself hungry, if you ever find yourself hungry, know this church that the hungry, he fills with good things. Hallelujah. The hungry, he fills with good things. The only reason we don't really resonate to this is because it's been a very long time since we found ourselves hungry. Am I right or am I right? Totally right. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away. Who are the rich in the New Testament? The idle rich. The rich who are so rich they don't have to work anymore. All they do is go on cruises and take photos and post it online. I'm not against taking cruises. I took one last year. I'm against doing nothing but that. 
Because that defines you as the idle rich. And if you are the idle rich, that's literally what the New Testament means. Every time it castigates the rich, it is castigating the idle rich, the ruling class, those who are so wealthy that generation after generation after generation after generation will not have to do any work. You know what happens to those people? They go down to perdition. A friend of mine has a friend who flies the private jet for a family whose great-grandfather won the title to oil fields in Saudi Arabia as a result of his work in the war. This family is so rich that they haven't had to work for generations. Every single one of the children currently in that family are dealing with what? Depression, anxiety, and drug addiction. And they're one of the richest families in the United States of America. Okay? That's who the scripture is talking about when it's talking about the rich who God sends away. But if in any way we in our affluence begin echoing the lifestyle of those idle rich, we ourselves are at risk of being sent away. It is to no mistake that the Bible says that it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the teachable point for us. If you're completely self-sufficient, you better re-leverage your life right now. And worship team, I'm almost done. You re-leverage your life because you know that you don't have to save your life. Why? Because he has helped and will help and does help his children. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. You know what it literally says? He's helped his boy. I mean, even if you're a girl... You could say hallelujah to that. He's helped his child. God thinks of you as his child. And he gives you good things that you don't deserve, which is the definition of mercy. Why? Because he promised he would. Who did he promise this to? He promised it to Abraham. When did he promise it to Abraham? In Genesis 15 and 17. When can we explore that? On January 28th and February 11th in our Patriarch series, when I will preach you through Genesis 15 and 17. Bring your safety helmet and your seatbelt. Because in those two chapters, he says to him something very foundational. God says to Abram, I'll be your God. You be my person. You and all your descendants after you. Cool? And Abram goes, sounds good to me. So that's what God promises to Abram. And you're thinking, Todd, I'm not Jewish. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Todd, I'm not. I'm from Ireland, man. Look at me. I'm like so pale. I'm French. I'm not. Yes, you are. You're Jew. Okay. I'll show you how you're Jewish. Verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So how does the seed of Abraham come to you? Yes, I'm your best friend today. I'll tell you exactly how. Abraham begot Isaac, who begot Jacob, who begot Judah. After Judah comes Peretz, Chezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nachshon, Salmon, Boaz. And his sweet wife, Ruth, who gave birth to Oved, Jesse, who gave birth to King David, the great king, founder of the Messianic line, who gave birth to Solomon, Rehoboam, Aviyah, Asa, Yehoshaphat, Yoram, Uzziah, right? In the year that King Uzziah died. Jothan, Ahaz, Chizkiyahu, Hezekiah, the righteous king. Menashe, he was a bad one. Amon, Josiah, another righteous king. Jehoniah, 
not a righteous king, after whom the Israelites went into exile in Babylon. We're now at 586 BC, who gave birth to Shaltiel, Zuvavel, Aviud, Eliakim, Azer, Tzadok, Achim, Eliud, El Azar, who gave birth to Matan, who gave birth to Jacob, who gave birth to Joseph, who married the teenager Mary, who was the mother of the one who shall be called the Christ, into whom you have been adopted at the cross. Somebody shout. You've been gathered into that Jesus at the cross. With that Jesus, you rose again the third day. In that Jesus, you sit even now at the Father's right hand, kind of involved in interceding for yourself. If Ephesians 2.6 is to be believed, it, it literally says you're seated with God in Christ in heavenly places. I just made my eardrum pop. <laughs> you need to calm down. I'm not going to calm down. Not today. Not today. Why? <laughs> because my spirit exalts in Christ my Savior. And i got to tell you, exaltation is very biblical. Because it sounds to me like this is exactly what Jesus is going to do when he returns it sounds exactly like this is what's happening in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where we read, For the Lord himself, I'm going to shout, get ready, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Hallelujah, that's what we're waiting for. Okay, a little more calm in case you're a quiet person. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Hallelujah! This is your destiny. This is what's going to happen to you. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he comes back from the Father's right hand, where he's seated right now with you in him. The first thing he does is start shouting. I mean, I could drop the mic right there. What's he shouting? Behold, I make all things new. What's he doing? Why is he blowing a trumpet in Zion? Because he's inaugurating the new heavens and the new earth. And his kingdom, which will have no end. A kingdom in which, my friend, you have a home. That's your once and forever Christmas present. You have a home. You have a place to belong. You're an outcast no longer. This is your family. Welcome home. Your family starts here. It continues into, in the words of Mary, the eons. That's what she says in verse 55. Let me finish with it. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his seed forever, which literally means into the eons. My dear friends, you are part of that eternal reality even now. Which is kind of why when I say somebody shout, I sort of mean it. Because it looks to me that your destiny is much more up than down. So in light of that, what say you? In light of that, what say you? 
Well, I mean, one thing you could say this month is, have a Merry Christmas. Or, better yet, have a Merry's Christmas. <laughs>